Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians and entrepreneurs that are shaping the face of the healthcare revolution in the UK and beyond. As always, I want to say a big thank you to the team at UK Health Radio for the show, for the platform and welcome if you're listening live. Also welcome if you're watching on YouTube on our channel or if you're listening on any of the podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Stitcher, Deezer, we're on all of them. We're up on all of them. And the numbers are going up and up. So we're getting more and more people listening, which is wonderful. So um, on to today's show. Today's show, we've got two cracking guests today, um, real leaders in the health tech space um, from slightly different angles. So we think it's going to be a very, very interesting discussion. So we have Sarah Nelson, who's the program director for Digital Health dot london which is also referred to as the nhs digital accelerator colloquially um and PopDoc itself was on that as uh you know a couple of years ago and it was fantastic and, and transformative for us some people refer to it as the premier nhs digital accelerator it's a hard fought title along with the national innovation accelerator um and i, I think we can get into some details with sarah about the the real sort of um the reason why an accelerator is helpful and, and beneficial, not just obviously to the companies that are on it, but also to the the actual system itself, right? That's that's the re- that you know as as, as as sort of kind-hearted as 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 the NHS is. There's always there's always an angle that they want to benefit from it, and I think that that's really interesting for that. And then secondly, we have Marcel Gerung, who is the CEO and founder of Cited, which combines AI pathology and digital pathways to diagnose cancer more quickly, specifically esophageal cancer. I, I believe is their main current starting point so marcel sarah welcome to the show how are you both hello steve thank you yes very well thank you good marcel hi steve great to be here again good yeah and now at the last time eager very keen listeners will have potentially noticed that i got marcel's name wrong so i'm not going to do that this time i'm going to get <laughs> it right the whole show i even wrote it in capitals on my pad so um one of the things, one of the benefits of having two guests on a show is that you can create more of a discursive type of atmosphere, which is good for you, everyone listening. So I think where I'd like to start, um, and we talked about this just just before we went live um, to you both, I'll come to Sarah first, which is what is the value? Digital health is thrown around. The term's been thrown around for a really long time now. You can kind of pick a point where you think it kind of started, but what, call it 15 years ago? I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, depends. But what is the value, do you think, to patients and the system of what we talk about as digital healthcare, which is a super broad term, right? I mean, because like it's kind of all digital now, you know, in one way or another. But why don't we kind of start with you, Sarah, and then we can come to Marcel, because obviously as an entrepreneur, he'll have a different view or, you know, or at least I hope so, because otherwise it might be quite a short show. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, it's certainly... Um... Digital health has 
influenced my career quite drastically. I've been an NHS nurse for over 30 years now. And so the um, when I first started nursing, there wasn't digital technology in the way there is today at all. Um, right. and it, nothing. And, there was nothing. nothing. No, the, there was technology, obviously, in intensive care units, but I had nothing at all within the ward environment in which I worked or in how I how I learnt my trade in my nursing um, training at all. So um, the first time I remember technology actually affecting me was when I was in a coronary care unit and a drug company brought in this computer and put it on the side <laughs> of the okay. uh, of the ward and sort of were like, that's for you to use and that's going to help you with okay. looking after your patient. And it was a real culture shock to us at the time to go, well, how's that going to help us with our patient? And actually, I want to keep my patient alive. If I press a button, is that actually going to have an impact on what happens? And right. so that real baseline misunderstanding that I had as to what it was going to do and how it was going to change things I couldn't have contemplated where we are today for a start but certainly at that stage it was a real it it was it was a scary thing for me and I do often think back to that time and think actually in the role we're in today and a role ensuring that the um the innovations that we bring in are for a reason that they mm-hmm. actually do benefit patients and staff and they really um have a positive impact on the nhs that's why i've sort of ended up in the role i'm in now as a nurse but working as program director um covering a couple of programs that really bring innovation and innovators into the nhs but also um supporting nhs staff to actually be able to bring things in in a way that is um uh the most robust if you like for the system to actually make it okay so so yes so from the point of view of uh getting here absolutely um it it's been a a long journey i think in my experience the journey has been quite um it's got a lot quicker over the last few years um, when I first joined around about sort of seven, eight years ago, um, an, an IT team as a clinician working yeah. with my IT team to make them realise what was happening, I realised that um, this was going to be a long journey and was probably going to be to the end of my career. Right. But over the last five to seven years, there has been such a change, both in uptake of clinicians and staff working within the hospitals and within uh, the rest of the NHS system, but also those who are um, uh, innovating are at a different stage um, compared to where we were so many years ago. As for the benefits, sorry, I shall go back to the question. No, it's okay, don't worry, you can answer it however you like, you know, whichever way you want to go. I think value has to be brought in from a very early stage we need to know why it is that we're doing this and it has to be related to patients or to staff and there's a lot more workforce tools now than there ever were um and the value um are is is seen when a relationship has been formed between an innovator and a organization to answer a problem that they have at that point and once we've actually answered what the problem is and the innovation has been shown to be robust and developed and uh, iterated, if you like, and 
there's a lot of conversation now about being co-produced and 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 sort of together. Um, if that's done from an early stage, then we are seeing impacts on uh, patient outcomes. We are seeing impacts um, when it comes to um, uptake. Um, some of our companies have uh, been able to roll out platforms literally within a weekend um, across the system because of right. things like COVID-19 happening and things like that. I heard about that stuff. That was a big deal, I believe, back in the big day deal. where, you know, now not so much, maybe. I don't know. So anyway, I think that's super interesting. Marcel, I want to bring in you on this point because you, um, you know, we've known each other for a while, been on a various different, you know, talking heads, firesides, things. And um, the thing that I wanted to, to, to pick up on from what Sarah just said is around the benefit having like being able to define find a clear problem and then work that through um which is i think what you've done very specifically because you've you've built a platform but focusing at least to begin with very specifically on one very specific type of cancer with a huge amount of friction in the diagnostic pathway so over to you thank you steve um i think there's one particular open very interesting thing to start with which is picking up from sarah um i have been here in the UK, in the NHS, and I would say, you know, in the broader healthcare world, somewhere between five, five and seven years right now. So mm -hmm. I have been part of like, my experience of digital health and more digitally oriented healthcare delivery um, in line with what Sarah just says, actually sort of like starts where, you know, Sarah, you just mentioned where it probably became more turbulent from, from your point of view, because I mean, I, I remember the days, you know, where where um, where I grew up in Germany, where people were mostly relying on fax machines um, between GP surgeries and sending things back and forward. Um, so, funnily enough, when I sort of came came to this, not as a patient but as an innovator and entrepreneur from the other end of the spectrum, um, I was thrown into the deep end of all of the questions which are being thrown around over the last few years, ranging from interoperability over to deployment speed and and things which Sarah and and companies in the digital health accelerator i'm sure encounter on a daily basis these days because obviously the topic which always we come back to when it comes to digital health application that is being deployed within an nhs environment is you know how does it read in how does it read out and write into the electronic medical record and yeah. how does all of that work and there's obviously a massive compliance piece around that um what we have done is 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 interesting because as we are working coming out of a you know more molecular diagnostics and diagnostics angle into the entire digital topic um we had an opportunity there which is on the first uh, on the on the uh, on the first hand um based on having a very focused clinical pathway in which we deliver which is early cancer detection of esophageal cancer directly looking at reflux and heartburn patients finding these patients early offering them an intervention where there's currently nothing in the standard of care. And then if these patients are being diagnosed, um, then they can be referred into more escalated pathways and, and, and anything that has been found can be addressed downstream. But from a digital perspective, and, and I'm sure some of the people from our tech team actually might listen to this call. We always had this. Very I hope interesting... so. I assume that you said it around the whole company. Oh, yes. So what? Like the bosses on the radio. It's, blast, it's blasted all over our slides. <laughs> you know, um, I think the question here is is was for us how much do we vertically integrate and how much do we abstract the digital interface away from what we actually do because how we deliver diagnostic testing in the UK now is we try to own 
as much of the value chain as possible that then the amount of integrations we actually have to do with healthcare providers is limited to a contract in most cases. So there's not much they need to, they need to do beyond that. Um, we're also working on some new applications, which are dropped right into the ecosystem, which we have been building already, which is very, which is very oriented on the specific clinical pathway we're addressing. That obviously comes at the expense of not being able to generalize, you know, across other cancer pathways and helping to triage, let's say even a colonoscopy, you know, sort of like mm-hmm. waiting list uh, or something like that. But it's very specifically tailored for what we're doing in upper GI cancer. But with them, and, sorry, go on, carry on. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to jump in. No, you carry no, on. No, no, it, it also, it, 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 it's just totally fine. Um, in, in our case, it always comes back to, and I don't want to open that can of worms at this point in time. We have another 50 minutes to do that. Is We could probably spend an, a what are you two days. Say? Deba- now I'm worried. Now I'm worried. What are you going to say? Debate, debating the definition of digital health and how digital has something to be in order to classify this digital health. Does it need to be you know, some kind of application that surfaced within a healthcare environment and is used by a healthcare professional and you know, either makes more medicine or makes it more personalized, you know, care delivery or increases quality, reduces cost, access, efficiency, optimization, um, yeah. which in our case, all of these things do, but we don't, you know, we don't provide a tool to a clinician, which they log in and they then, you know, go through a list of patients and there's a smart flag being shown up on which of these patients they have to give further attention to. Obviously, this is all, you know, a massive spectrum on what we classify as digital health. But one of the ways how we have, how we try to address this, particularly in the upper GI cancer space with our first application is also enabled by the funding we've raised. Um, and we just closed another funding round before Christmas. Um, we, we really double down on owning as much of the pathway in-house as we can. You know, we're now exploring an even, an even, you know, more ambitious model, which is where we even staff the clinics in which um, patients that are being referred into our, in our, into our service um, are, are being looked after. So taking vertical integration to the absolute extreme and sort of combining the different elements, which obviously we've seen across the care delivery landscape over the last few years and trying to figure out how we can make them the best use of them in one particular patient pathway and then obviously extrapolate into others in the future. That is extremely exciting. So are you kind of trying to move as far as you can up and downstream of the actual diagnostic piece? And why is that? Why are you doing that? Um, Several different reasons. One of the main ones is probably around, um, and this is related to the big big, uh, COVID topic, obviously, a few years ago. And I think it probably has been a topic before that. And I'm sure Sarah, you would concur with that. Capacity resourcing has always been a challenge in the NHS. It will always be a challenge in the NHS because I think it's a healthcare system that is built to pay a lot of attention to that and, and optimize on that front. So we came to realize that, you know, how do we maximize network effects and actually enable someone to start? And, and Sarah, you brought a great example here um, of, you know, people being able to deploy something within a weekend, you know, on a system-wide basis. Obviously, what we do is in some ways a bit more hands-on, but we're trying to strive for similar types of operating models where we can basically say, okay, if you want to start with, you know, your patients being tested next week, what do we need, what do we need to do to do this? And I can tell you that the contrast would be in the model we're currently looking at and building um we could do that easily next week. You know, if Sarah is a GP and wants to start next week, we could easily do that. And, you know, there would be someone in the, in the GP surgery in the next few days and they would, they would set all of the relevant things up. Um, Whereas if we would go through the more organic route, which we, which we have in, in secondary care in particular over the last two years, just to get off the ground, things can take 
weeks, months. I mean, you know, we speak about three, four months and the more we are vertically integrated, the more we own the entire delivery pathway, the less adoption challenges we have and the easier it is to access scale. Right. Sarah? I, I Certainly where I've seen successes have been where um, companies and founders have really worked with the system because you're absolutely right, Marcel. Um, there are so many stresses within the system and I think that in the near future, that's only going to get harder. Um, and so therefore, any company that actually can go in and work within that system and support right the way from um, business cases, right the way through, I think stands much more chance of actually getting accepted, getting onboarded and um, working robustly within the uh, the, um, the pathway that is going on. Yeah. So I, I, I completely agree. And that's what we've seen at PopDoc as well, which is it's kind of interesting because, you know, completely different areas. But, you know, Cited began with a particular hard piece of hardware, right? The Cited sponge or sort of that was one of the, the key things. But in a similar way to PopDoc, we were a lateral flow that provides a six market lipid panel. Those two things in of themselves are going to go absolutely nowhere <laughs> without, you know, without. Well, first of all, you can't even make the diagnosis without the image analysis pathway for PopDoc. But but the same, you know, just having that kind of that's kind of why I'm interested. And we can get into it in a, in a, in a, probably after the commercial break, I guess. But that journey from, you know, because, again, particularly from the digital health dot London accelerator, which I believe applications are now open or have they shut now or what's the situation? They, they will be open very soon. Very soon. Very okay. Soon, dot, very dot, soon. Dot. Well, <laughs> glad, glad, glad we got that out there. Um, the, the, is around this, just having an idea around what a physical piece of hardware can do is a thousand miles away from that being even adopted in a pilot, let alone the ability to scale up. And so in the same way as Cited is moving up and down the path, it's the same for us. And so a lot of the, the NHS contracts that we've got are really around how do you own as much of that cardiovascular pathway primary prevention second prevention as you can you know from risk assessment through to prescription of statins or other lipid lowering therapies and it really is i agree with you sarah it, it really does seem that that is what you need to be doing and how you need to be thinking if you think the nhs is your customer or a possible customer is that would you concur Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, as it was uh, always said in the NHS Digital Academy that I did, people before technology. Right. And problem, right? For a specific problem and also like probably not just the thing that I learned on the accelerator, which I would recommend to any, you know, any, anyone running a health tech business who's interested in collaborating with the NHS. I can assure you that there's a lot you don't know. <laughs> However much you know, there's a lot you don't know. And um uh, so I would thoroughly recommend it. And I think the thing that, that was really clear to me and to us when we were growing PopDoc was was around the so what factor. It's like, cool, you can generate some data. That's cool. No one's been able to do that before. That's kind of cool, right? In the same way we cited, it's like it takes a gajillion years to have an endoscopy and it's quite invasive. So I, you've got a cool little neat thing here. That's kind of cool. But that's not the same as having a solution that the NHS can actually buy use scale integrate with you know what i mean and even just having a clinician interested is not the same thing either right no you need to you need to 
there are so many things, as you say, that we might unpick on the next uh, part because there, yeah. uh, it is about how we really get um, understanding as to what actually the product is, but also then where it fits in. Definitely. Yeah, and I, I think the thing for us as well, I don't know if it's the same way for you, Marcel, it might, it might not be because the, the need that you focus on is so clear and the baseline was so low in effect, but but the problem and how the system, the NHS views the problem changes longitudinally, right? Because it's not always the same. Like if I think about, yeah, yeah I don't know, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no. <laughs> I think it's some, in some ways, um, it's more difficult to innovate in a space. I mean, so there, there could be pushback on that now, but it's <laughs> slightly more difficult in some areas to innovate in a space with a lower baseline, particularly right. in a socialized healthcare system like in the NHS, because, okay. the, you know, if we, if we look at how decision making is being done from a service management perspective, you know, across an NHS trust, it, the easiest thing is, is if there's a baseline to compare it with that's ideally reasonably close so that the things you introduce as change are in a manageable amount of categories, basically. Right. If you want to turn the entire hospital upside down, even though if it makes a lot of sense and it saves a lot of money, you resist, you, you, you met, you're met with resistance, which Sarah already alluded to, which is people. It's not subject matter or business cases or anything like that. They're just a means to an end. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things which we have encountered over the last two years where you realize, oh, people hang on to this because the people who manage a particular area, you know, of work within a hospital, they also have to, they justify what they do, but they also need to, in some ways, justify their own business case of why they exist in the first place. So their, 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 their attraction towards change might be slightly more limited, you know, by the excitement of the business mm -hmm. case and by how much money it could actually save, yeah. because there's yeah. other motives which have to be managed in parallel. They can be managed, but it then comes back to, you know, what's the motivations, interests, I and where do these people sit in the decision landscape? I completely agree. And I, I know Marcel knows this. I don't know if Sarah does, but, you know, I, my background was in sales commercial, you know, like I love talking about that type of thing. And the number of times, not just, you know, not just now, but throughout my whole career where people, they think they're selling to the system, then you're actually not. You're selling to an individual or a group of individuals. And like, you, you know, they're your customers. Yes, you know, whatever the broader organization ultimately is. But if you don't understand what they need but what also they're scared of and what they won't do and what is a disincentive for them to agree to and the number of times that, that we heard or i heard when we were starting the company oh you should talk to the nhs <laughs> you think? okay great i'll just go talk to the nhs then seems like a great idea thank you for that that kernel so yeah um right we're going to be right back after this commercial break, because my producer's making very um, concerned faces at me that we need to go to a commercial break. After that, I want to get into this life cycle of the company, right? From both a, an accelerator perspective, why does the NHS need accelerators? You know, I'm not trying to be annoying. I think it's an interesting question to ask. And then as an entrepreneur, um, you know, that journey from okay, you've got a site to sponge, but that's like a long way away from where you are now and how that journey happens i think will be super interesting so we'll be back in two minutes with dr marcel Deron, ceo and founder of cited and sarah nelson who's the program director of digital health london the nhs's premier digital accelerator we'll be right back in two minutes uk health radio the station that makes you feel good Apples and pears, 
beef and skittles, cider with Rosie, common or garden, ant and deck, fish and chips, mum and dad. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at ukhealthradio.com. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Bruce, and my guests, Marcel Goering, the CEO and um, CEO and founder of Cited, and Sarah Nelson, who's the program director for the Digital Health London Accelerator. So, Sarah, I want to start with you. So, give us just a bit of an overview because there's probably a lot of people listening that are like, "What on earth is an accelerator? Is it that thing that I press in a car? Like, what is that? Is it relevant? Like, what? Why, why does the system need?" that so i think maybe just a, a, a quick bit on, on on that would be super interesting and then if you could kind of parlay there's been some amazing companies that have been through the program not just pop doc there are others um and uh, i think it'd be interesting to talk about that and, and and why and how you support entrepreneurs on that journey absolutely steve um as for why an accelerator, um, I suppose I can take my own experience as a as a, um, a senior nurse for digital working in one of the leading teaching hospitals. Um, I had an awful lot of technology that was coming to me on a daily basis and saying, we're fabulous, we're going to solve all of your problems. And so that opportunity to ha- have an understanding as to what is good out there, what is really going to make a difference and what should we be putting our money to? So where an accelerator is really helpful for the system is in order to um, really uh, do that due diligence on companies and um, review the uh, innovations that are out there. And certainly digitalhealth.london supports some of the best and highest potential um, innovations that can support and transform the NHS. And they do that by putting them through quite a robust application process and review process where they're seen by about 14 or um, their applications and their interviews are about 14 different NHS members of staff they come across before they even get through the door. From an innovator's perspective, they get an opportunity to spend, in our case, a year working with NHS staff who um, have got an interest in digital technology and bringing that into the NHS. And those innovators spend a year looking at their offering, as is at the moment, working with stakeholders and developing where things might change. They have the opportunity to really look at their communication strategy and how how they can communicate to those different stakeholders. They get the opportunity to meet people from within the system. They get the opportunity to um, look at the evidence they have currently. And that's real world evidence as well as sort of higher levels of evidence and look at actually in the scheme of things, um, how does that 
evidence actually stack up? And where do they need to develop the evidence? What can they actually do um, in their company to prove the uh, the robustness of the uh, of the individual technology? So there is a system improve uh, benefit to having an accelerator, and there is um, a, um, a having for an innovator. It gives them that real structured program of development. Um, I think it's um, uh, obviously that's from my side of things. Steve, yeah, I know you're going to sell it, right? You yeah. from your side of things because you were part of the program. Yeah, exactly. So I think the um, and then I'm going to I'll give a quick answer and then I want to get Marcel to to, to kind of get his view on on, on things because I know that he's interacted with the NHS on another accelerator. Um, I think that the, the 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 reason why we wanted to get on it was the pedigree of the program is extremely good. There's a lot of major companies that that are scaling or have scaled within the NHS that have been through that program. I think also we were we were we were modest and humble enough to know what we didn't know at the time. You know, and and, and I think the biggest mistake that companies make with the NHS is to think that it is the NHS, you know, like that and you don't I've always been a big believer in, in you really need to understand your customers if you want to actually have a good chance of success. And so just sort of willy nilly having a crack at the NHS is just wasn't on our plan. So we wanted to learn as much as possible um, and learn what we didn't know. And, and that was I mean, the, the, the program delivered in spades on that front. You know, the access that you get to clinicians. And like I said, it's sort of, you know, having a product is I mean, we can't do anything without a product, but it's still not the same as actually having a shot, a good chance at, at, at operating successfully in the NHS. So, Marcel, what's your view? Yeah, so as you, as you correctly said, we went through the other accelerator, the other one. The NHS, NHS Innovation <laughs> Accelerator. Yeah. Um, shout out to that team. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to be represented on the call. Is it, was, it, was it Conrad there when you did it? No, no, uh, no, no. It was uh, it was the the team around. Um, actually, we, we we were we were the cohort right during the transition phase. So Conrad is obviously now, um, yes. and we are still we're still a fellow fellows in the second year, and someone else from the team um, is, is is now on there. But yeah, Conrad is certainly certainly obviously the person who looks after it uh, after it now. And from what I've heard, is doing a is doing a great job at doing that and. You know, reinvigorating the entire community around it and the visibility of the accelerator. Um, yeah. I think what happened with us is that, and this was acknowledged at the time we joined the accelerator, we were probably too on the very mature side for the accelerator. We already had two nas- large national programs running at the time with NHS England and the NHS Cancer Program. Um, that was already on rails at the time. So I think. If we would have been a year earlier, that would have probably been, you know, maximum benefit. A lot of the lessons, you know, you could take away from 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 accelerator scheme. We already went through. We, we you know, we raised a ten million seed round in the beginning, and then raised another round last year. So none of those elements um, were directly really applied to us, just because we, by the sheer force of the initial capital we've raised, catapulted ourselves out of the accelerator territory pretty much from on day one. Also, then how quickly the organization grew, how much competence we we hired into the organization. Now, you know, being around uh, seventy people or so, there's really there's really limited things which we could really sort of like do a deep dive in. We got a lot of interesting introductions out of it, and we mm-hmm. got a very interesting 
view into certain pockets of the NHS when it comes to specific types of innovations and what to be aware of in terms of bottlenecks, but also opportunities. Um, that being said, um, a lot of the other profiles of individuals um, which have gone into the NIA and also, you know, some of them even have gone through the Digital Health London one and through the NIA, um, yeah. you know, Vine Health, I think, for Let's, example. We, we exactly. call them double winners. Yes, exactly. Double, double graduates, basically. Um, there's, there, I think there's merit. I, I think it's important, and, and Sarah did that already very, very clearly and, 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 and precisely for the Digital Health London one. Like Every accelerator covers a certain spectrum and is very good at a certain spectrum. There's people mm-hmm. out there that go to accelerators because they think they're going to be accelerated by that accelerator. Well, they're only going to be accelerated in specific areas where that accelerator actually has a core competency to help. There's another yeah. one here, here in Cambridge, for example, Start Codon, that is run by by a very dear friend of mine um, who um, they also invest in companies and they are now doing yeah. a lot of venture building as a venture studio it's called Start Codon. Um, and again, like they're you know they have access to capital, that's one of their strengths. But you won't get the same you know n- you won't get the same substance in some of the niches in there which you, for example, would get into dig- digital health London accelerators. They might even yeah. be complementary, or they are even complementary mm-hmm. in that way. Um, but what I certainly realized is also my first experience, you know, going into an accelerator, which was the NIA was it's really difficult sometimes from the outside, even with the best educational material that you can make available, what you can expect from it, because there's a lot of internal challenges, which people come into with an accelerator. And then there's a lot of external challenges, which is usually what the accelerator is built to solve. Mm -hmm. But then people come into it and they think they walk out of it a, you know, three times better CEO or something like that, or uh, three times better, you know, three times more commercial or, you know, three yeah. times more strategic. But it it completely comes down to what people seek in accelerators and then how they can align what they want to get out of that with the core competence yeah. of the accelerators. I, I, I agree. Like, there's no magic bullet, you know, and, and particularly not if something's geared around the NHS, right? Like, no one can guarantee you success. You have to really work at it. I think just to go back, Jason and Daniel who run Start Code on, very close to those guys as well. Yeah. Love that program. So that's kind of an interesting one, just to kind of go off slightly. But Did yeah, I just, just one thing. yeah, go on, Sarah. Yeah. Sorry, Steve. Um, just to completely agree about the fact to find the right accelerator for you, but also or for your business, but also at the right time, because there may be times when it's uh, to do with investment and there may be times when it's to do with learning and development of the thing. Yeah. So totally find it at the right time. The other thing is expect the fact that your benefits will come in years two and three after the programme. They won't come during that time because you have a limited time, but that's when you build your relationships. And that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, totally agree. You know, and I think things like Start Code on are kind of interesting because they're in this like venture building space, almost like you said, where it's sort of, it is an accelerator, it is a program, but they also invest. I mean, like that's like legit, they put like 200K into each company, I think, or like 250 or whatever it is. I mean, that's like, you know, if you're starting out and it's a spin out from one of the universities or whatever it is, like 200, 250K is pretty solid money right at that point in time so um credit to them for that so Marcel how is it what do you have this type of stuff in Germany or the the system's different it just works differently no you do have that too you do have that too um probably even like Germany is not so clustered around around London 
like we are here in the UK, where obviously right. it feels like you know all rail lines and everything, everything yeah. started in London one way or the other, which also means that a lot of talent and a lot of um, competence and skill is 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 in and around London and you know the Golden Triangle with Cambridge and Oxford. Um, in Germany, you have them more localized. You know, there's 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 sort of like technology clusters in every federal state and every one of these capitals probably has one or the other accelerator scheme. That being okay. said, there are a few very nationally visible ones, particularly in the tech world. Um, they're less prominent ones, you know, in healthcare. They're more localized. It's like, you know, and then they're backed by, let's say, Roche, because, you know, Roche has, is headquartered well, yeah. around the corner. Yeah, or buyer, you know, you know, or BASF or those types of companies, um, which again comes with a very different, it comes with a very different benefit. Maybe also a few more disadvantages in this case. Um, it's certainly something which, you know, as fragmented as the NHS might be, the entire cohesion culture around the NHS certainly enables you to build platforms like Digital Health London, where at least everyone shares the same foundation and platform they stand on. How they solve their own problems on that platform is a different question, but. Even though Germany is a harmonized healthcare system too, well, again, not as harmonized as the NHS is, you know, and people would agree that the NHS is very harmonized, but r relatively spoken, it is, certainly. Yeah. I think some good news um, about accelerators, and, and you're absolutely right, Marcel, that they are, they are actually around everywhere. I mean, I have um, regular meetings with Estonia, with Spain. Um, oh, Estonia are like smashing it, right? So Estonia has got some great stuff. And I think what's happening within the accelerators are we're getting better at working with each other to identify where there may be themes that are happening within the mental health. It's going to be a global issue. So we need to think about that. Um, but also on a day-to-day -day basis, from the point of view of when you're putting out calls for international companies, actually, if we can share some of our companies, I think that's a really helpful thing. So I think there is definitely some interesting work that is going to be happening more now that each of the countries has got these hubs, if you like. Do you, um, do you see, do, do you, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but do you see what or do you have an opinion about what's going to happen in the regulatory environment with ca ce you know acceptance of one acceptance of the other mutual i don't know any thoughts i've got some but why don't you guys go first so i think this is the perfect political platform to say that the mhra should be should be should be supported more and should receive more funding because right some people that rely on the MHRA, and I have a couple of horror stories, you know, also from one of our most recent investors that joined Cited and some of their portfolio companies, and um, people basically being delayed to market by, you know, many, many months up to a low number of years because, you know, through various, for various reasons, which most of them are political, um, unfortunately, UKCA and the process and how that is being managed which, and implemented and maintained is has made things very difficult for innovators, with, particularly in the early stage of companies. Without breaking confidences, what type of industry were those companies in, or what kind of was that? What, what type of with, with high risk, high, high risk, high risk medical devices? So, so okay. plus two B three. Okay, so like diagnostic devices where there was a lot of risk around getting it wrong. Uh, even further, like also also partially therapeutic. So oh, okay, right. And was that because there wasn't, were they effectively de novo? They were new and so it was a bit of confusion around it or was it like, okay. 
Yeah, and it was even just for, for for them to get their clinical validations and their first clinical proof of concepts up and running and getting, um, you know, study notification over to the MHRA and getting them to engage with that. It's just, it lands on a massive backlog right now. And yeah. all notified well, bodies in the UK are, are overwhelmed. We obviously, you know, very pertinent actually to talk about this this morning. You know, the, the MDR transition period has been extended again. Oh, has um, it? It went yeah, out again, did it? Yeah, has has, wow. has been decided this morning and co- communicated. So, yeah. So I don't just even to, know where just, to start and stop here. Just to <laughs> just to bring everyone who's listening up to speed on what's probably quite a complicated area. So, probably people remember from like COVID and all the new COVID tests that are coming out. Like, do they have the CA mark or CE mark? It's on the bottom of everyone's kettle or whatever it is. Because we did Brexit, we transitioned over. Now we have our own thing called a CA mark, um, but there needs to be someone that gives you that CA mark in effect, which is called a notified body. It's just what they're called. You apply, they take a look, they ask you questions, they like it, they don't like it, they review it. But at the moment, because um, a large number of the notified bodies in Europe were outside the UK, none of them are allowed to give a CA mark. I think still no one's been actually approved i don't think out so there were only ever one or two of these notified bodies in the uk but now they those two are the only ones that can effectively green light or stamp products to come onto the market in the uk which just creates a huge backlog meantime you've got i think 30 across europe in some way shape or form someone 30 or 40 and they're not allowed right now to give anyone market approval for the uk right Along those lines, yeah. Roughly, I don't know the yeah. exact numbers, but yeah. the orders of magnitude you're talking about sound absolutely correct. And they feel, yeah. they feel certainly that way. They've, and like, Sarah, on the, on the accelerator and stuff like that, I know it's very geared around the NHS and adoption and things like that, but is, is regulation and regulatory, is that something where you guys have a bit of a specialism and, and you take companies through? I know that you kind of did with us, but I don't know whether uh, we we left before all of this like CA mark shenanigans kind of kicked off, which is really a problem for people in, in I, the I, industry. I think you're absolutely right. It's having a huge impact um, in the industry. And I think that it is constantly changing at the moment. And right. there is no, we can't do an hour study session and say, this is how it is, because that's not the way it is at the moment. And I think that's why being linked into anybody who actually has uh, either a link to the regulation um, boards or to um, NHS England or any of those sort of things, if you can find somebody who can support you through this, um, or um, I'm um, some, some other bodies that can support you, because at the moment it is so unstable, and we just don't have the details to hand. So find something. Yeah. And it's really it's really interesting. So like um, in Switzerland, for example, they just announced. And by the way, everyone listening, I know they're going to be like, oh, my God, they started talking about regulatory and they wouldn't stop talking about regulatory. The reason why this actually matters is that you can't do anything. You can't release a product without this. So everyone's like, oh, why can't they have more products that solve my problem? It's like, well. They need to do this. So in Switzerland, they've now said that they'll also accept anything that's FDA approved. So I, 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 I'm just kind of curious to see whether... For which that, there are rumours, without spilling any beans here, for which there are rumours that we're looking at a similar framework here in the UK. And I think they have to, because you can't get the throughput with the existing agencies in the UK. So the number of products on the UK market will drop dramatically. Um and, and we all know, of... and we and we know that the FDA in 
not in all areas, but in most areas, applies a lot more rigor, and and yeah. has a lot a much higher bar. So what Switzerland has been doing or is doing right now is is a very smart move because the FDA is well funded, and you know they have their own challenges, but it's you know I mean there's there's certain there's certain geopolitical reasons why you might not want to do something like this and i think that plays a major role here in the uk too is why would you want to rely on a regulatory authority from another country and you then subject yourself to uh, to other challenges um but something like that i mean if we would build the system from scratch you would want to have something that is more or less globally recognized but i don't think we're going to get there anytime soon (laughs) Well, I don't think it's going to be soon. I do think they're going to have to figure out something because at some point I think there's going to be a massive crunch issue because you can't keep extending that deadline and, you know, infinitely. But anyway, we're going to go for our final commercial break and then we'll be back for the final part of the show with um, Sarah Nelson, head of the Digital Health London Accelerator and Marcel Gerung, CEO of Cited. When we come back, Marcel, I want to kick off by really trying to kind of talk about the journey that you guys have been on from a kind of, an idea, a problem, a product, and now just really because I think it's a super interesting area. Is obviously not a million mark. It's, it's it's a different disease area, but a similar sort of digital diagnostic at its core. And I think that that's really interesting to talk about. So let's start there, and then we can wrap up the show afterwards. So we'll be back in two minutes. Okay. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. A for horses, B for mutton, Seymour Cheeks, dig for victory, E UK Health Radio and Health Triangle Magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle Magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at UKHealthRadio.com. T for two. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello, welcome back to the final part of today's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Bruce, and my guests, Marcel and Sarah. So, Marcel, you know, in as much detail as you want to go into, let's talk about esophageal cancer and how, I guess, to begin with, how did you end up focusing on that particular area or that particular condition? Just, just like, why? I mean, it's obviously important. I mean, I'm not saying it isn't, but you know, there's yeah. lots of other things. There's lots of other things. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, I think all of the listeners are certainly aware of um, colon cancer, bowel cancer screening programs, which have been around in, you know, many, many, many countries in the Western world for, you know, good number of years now. Uh, lots of success at a population level, you know, great improvement in health outcomes and reduction of long-term mortality of, of bowel cancer and colon, or colon cancer, called, called colon cancer sometimes. Um, it's funny because the lower GI tract has received 
a lot of attention, mostly because of the prevalence and incidence of the cancer, not necessarily because of the mortality of the cancer at the time. Um, that also plays into the same equation because of the prevalence and the incidence. But in the upper GI tract, um, esophageal cancer, interestingly, belongs to one of the probably ones with medium levels of incidence and prevalence, but one the second one with the highest mortality um, of all cancers out there. So, you know, five-year survivals, less than 15%. Um, it's probably two-thirds as many diagnoses of, of, of esophageal cancer compared to... Um, Compared to colon cancer every year, or maybe maybe a bit less actually. Maybe get my numbers wrong right now. And it's just di- it's just diagnosed a lot later, is it? Therefore, it's just di- diagnosed a lot later. So the mortality the mortality rate is 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 immense. So if you look at the absolute numbers of of, of cancer related deaths, then it certainly plays along many of the others up there again. If you just right. look at the incidence and prevalence, it doesn't play you know in the, in, the, in in the top X um, list. And because of the awareness of um, of cancers in the GI tract, a lot of the attention has been stolen in the last 20 years by the lower GI tract and by colon cancer screening, fit testing, you know, colonoscopy screening and so on. Um, and then, you know, when, when some more science actually um, was published in, in the late 90s, 2000s on where esophageal cancer comes from um, and that it has a strong correlation or relationship with a precursor condition called Barrett's esophagus, people slowly started to develop a consciousness. And as you can imagine, this took quite a long time because we're talking about the clinical landscape and public awareness at the same time to link original symptoms of that precancerous condition all the way to being at a risk at an increased risk of developing advanced esophageal cancer and those symptoms are heartburn and reflux very simple right. actually in the u.s now in the guidelines that that net is even cast is cast much wider you don't even have to have reflux anymore you just need to be obese over 50 and male for example there's three out of six criteria you need, you need to you need to tick to be in that risk group and um, when I first came in touch with it, I did not know much about Barrett's, neither did I know about esophageal cancer, until I started, you know, working with more GI clinicians. And you sort of get a bit of an understanding of, of what's going to be the tone in this space in five to ten to fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. as an innovator on these timelines, you obviously you have, obviously have to take odd bets. You know, there might be signals, you know, where there's increase of awareness or increase in technology traction, and then yeah. you know a bit of a gamble and a bet to go into that space and see what's going to come out of it. And when I started working with the team um, uh, with whom I ended up founding Cited together, uh, the clinical need became very, very obvious quite quickly. Um, there's obviously a, an interesting point in there, and you said it already earlier, Steve. Um, if you just have a device, which in our case is a capsule sponge technology, so it's a small sponge inside a capsule, patients can swallow that, goes into the stomach, capsule dissolves, a small piece of sponge expands, and it, you can then withdraw that. Sounds mu- sounds uncomfortable. It's actually not bad and I'm much more comfortable than getting an endoscopy in case you know, any one of the listeners ever has gone through one. That's certainly a lot more unpleasant. Um, but you know, what are you going to do with this? You're going to give this to a GP or to a GI clinician and yeah, they're going to so collect what? some cells and then so what? What's going to happen with that? So yeah. the entire you know combination of what biomarkers are relevant at a very early precancerous stage together with the device, together with understanding where in the pathway it needs to be delivered um, was something that was, you know, between 2018, 2020, there was a lot of work going on, which was more in the academic setting for us to understand that. Then we decided to build form a company around it. COVID started. And within a matter of months, we were asked to roll right. this out into a national program um, demonstrating that, okay, 
if there's pressure on, in this case, it was elective services like endoscopy, um, and there are triaging tools or adjunct testing tools available, then suddenly, you know, the clinical pathway can leap by five to seven years um, over usually going through, you know, very trickled adoption over a number of over a number of years, which wasn't the case for us, um, but very much accelerated by COVID because otherwise we wouldn't be in the situation we are in right now. We would probably be running, you know, some larger commercial pilots now in the UK, but we wouldn't be in in in, in pretty much eighty sites, you know, right. and covering the entire UK. Um, so, so yeah, I, I skipped a few steps here because you know there's a lot of considerations. <laughs> there, there's a lot of considerations that went in went into the you know why does it fit in the pathway where it sits right now. How are clinicians dealing with the information they're getting back from a test, which is a new intervention in a pathway where there's currently no intervention? Playing yeah. to my point earlier on, you know, if there's no baseline, how do you work with clinicians that have never come across something and that tells them that they should do something different or maybe the same? But again, yeah. it's something else that tells them whether they should do it. It's not their own experience or their own interpretation of guidelines. Um, yeah, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of color in those grayed out areas, um, which I just outlined. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it's, it's on the back end. We have developed a lot of digital tech tools, you know, to support and aid the delivery of it. And there's much more coming, um, later this year and next year. Um, but we, we had this, I think we had this curse and blessing of vertical integration From earlier. I talked about it as, you know, as it, as if it's a solution to everything, it makes it very difficult to build companies because as you both, or as everyone can imagine, that so probably listens to this is having a, com com uh, having a company focus on one thing is already difficult. Now let it do four things. And all of these four things have to be done really well. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, we are, we, mm -hmm. we are running our own labs. We have acquired a lab company two years ago. We do our own software development. We do medical device development. We do, you know, everything across that spectrum, which is, is a painful amount of horizontality and verticality to, to have under one. Yeah. yeah under I, one I completely, I completely agree. And I, you know, we, we're doing something very similar and it's it sort of, in one way it's frustrating because you have to, in yeah, effect, yeah. you know what I mean? There isn't really a choice. Well, there is, right? Well, I mean, you could do direct to consumer and then it doesn't matter in effect, right? Because, but then there's, there's, there's just a, a limited, but look, I'm, I, we work with the NHS because we want to work with the NHS and we want to help. And, and we, we know that that's the best thing to do for everybody, for the system, for patients and for and for us, obviously. Um, but it, it, it the the kind of table stakes, if you like, to play are a lot higher, you know, a yeah. lot more cost and a lot more overhead. And but ultimately, if you can get it done, like you said, you know, you go from zero sites to 80 sites in a, in a couple of years. Right. And that and that's kind of what the accelerator is all about supporting with. Is it not, Sarah? It is. And, and, and it's the understanding of the why. It's lovely hearing Marcel talk about sort of how he developed this uh, whole um, uh, company and, and, and how, where it's gone from and to, because actually the the individuals within the NHS, there is that, okay, why is this company coming towards me? Why are they telling me something? You mentioned, Marcel, about the, the gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist who's been doing something exactly the same way for the whole mm. career, to understand and to feel comfortable with something different, they've really got to understand why and where is it you come from? Why? why what is it that you know that is going to change how I am? So um, that, 
that's um, it's it's fascinating to sort of see how companies have developed and why they've developed. Yeah, and I think like the other thing, you know, a bit like we popped up with cardiovascular disease, you guys with with cancer, and there are well, obviously a ton more. Um, there are national level programs and funding, right, which is I think helpful. Um, because it means that there's some group of people somewhere centrally that's made a decision about the need to do this. And they've done their analysis. They've done all of their clinical work. They've worked out that they need to solve this particular problem, which is helpful for innovators because it makes it easier for us to integrate and, 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 and interact with, with that group versus a more bottom up approach, which is having you, you still have to speak to clinicians that get me wrong. But trying to sort of, I don't know, even at a local level, bidding on a small tender for something, you know, it, it, it just makes it much easier where there's these central things. But Marcel, I don't know if you agree. Uh, one thing which just came to my mind is that it is a lot easier to get a clinician's, you know, implicit support in saying that they think what you do is great and they support it. And it's a very different game if suddenly they have a patient coming through the door and they have to make the decision between option A and option B and you are providing option B and option B is new and maybe even has some clinical evidence associated to it and, and, and them to actually make the decision then, I mean yeah, and it's a big difference. difference and we can't underestimate the impact of um, uh, the uh, the priorities from the political priorities that there are um, because it definitely impacts on the ability for innovators to be able to I think it's quite interesting at the moment that with the large um, electronic health records that are being um, put throughout the countries there are certain organizations that actually it's probably not a good idea to go near at the moment because they are so um, um, uh, their all of their time and their headspace is all based on the electronic health record so knowing where to actually place yourself at that point um, because of the political impact. So where it can be really helpful, as you say, if, if, if nationally we're saying money for this particular area, but also the adverse side of that. Cool. So we've got to wrap up the show. It was great to have you both on. Before we do, Sarah, if anyone's listening and they want to find out more about the Digital Accelerator, where do they go? Okay, if they go onto digitalhealth.london's website, um, and so that's digitalhealth.london's website, um, there are all of the um, information about all of our programs. So that's the accelerator program, which is a year, and then there are smaller programs associated as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, perfect. And Marcel, it's cited.ai, right? C Y T E D.ai, is that correct? correct steve uh, there we 100%. go i even wrote that i even had that on my pad all right yeah thank you very much for, for, for joining sarah and marcel it was a really great show thank you to everyone for listening and we'll be back again next week have a great day thank you thank you Love is just a history that they...